Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 31. This is Deb Falzoy, and today I'm talking about what happens when black is blue. I'm talking about what happened to Brenda James, a black Boston police officer whose abuse at work escalated to a life-endangering situation. On this episode, part one of her story, you'll hear from Brenda herself, who explains the implicit bias that led up to this shocking event. Are you ready for it? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. So we've just seen protesting around the world of the murder of George Floyd from police abusive power. And you, as a former police officer and Black woman, are at the intersection of these two groups. So what's your take on the big picture in terms of abusive power from police as it relates to Black lives in general and in particular Black women? Well, thank you for the question. Um, I think as the nation looked and witnessed George Floyd's life leave his body, um, it forced us all to take a deeper look into racism, um, policing, systemic racism, Um, black officers are in a conundrum because we're wearing a blue uniform and still we're always black. Um, And so I definitely feel like it's, it's time for police reform. It's time to take a look at what's happening to black men and women, women disproportionately. Um, But also as a black officer and as a black female officer, there's also another layer of oppression and daily indignities and systemic racism that happens even within the police department. I feel like we are beginning to move forward where we're looking at the, looking at the intersectionality of all of the different groups that that are that have an outcry for for justice. Um, there are there is a lot of racism within the police department, not just with the policing system. Um, and as a black woman, I got on in 1994. Um, at that time, things were changing somewhat. But, but not quite enough. Black people were um, not really welcomed on jobs like that. And then the other layer to it is that women weren't welcomed. And, and then you had diversity happening where black women also were beginning to join the force, not in the 90s, prior to the 90s, but, um, and during the 90s, it was still, um, there was still a lot of racial tension in the city of Boston, in, in my personal opinion. Um, so I didn't know what to expect with the culture, uh, actually how I, could, how I could walk that fine line, because it is a fine line, um, and what type of racism I would experience personally as a black woman while wearing the, the blue uniform. Um, and as time went on, I learned more and more about the culture. Um, and so I, I, I had a lot of sentiments watching George Floyd be murdered, lynched, however you want to um, categorize it as, but it was one of the most eye-opening things I think that any of us could ever witness. And I think Judge Floyd is like the Martin Day um, Rodney King. And it just evoked so many emotions from so many people. And I think that's why we saw the protest because, you know, that's the language of the unheard. 
um, the beauty behind it, and if you will, could find the silver lining is that we've all been coming together slowly but surely. Um, and intersectionality deals with the fact that we can fit into different categories. We can all, you know, come together on, on common ground. And right now we're in a battlefield for justice. And I think that applies to women, black women, um, men, people that have been bullied, people that feel like they've been oppressed. Um, and so that's, that's, that's where it left me feeling. Um, it left me feeling as if all of the injustices need to be addressed. Um, and I see that happening. I see that, I see that happening historically. This, this movement for Black Lives Matter isn't just a Black Lives Matter movement. It's a movement for justice, period. Mm, I love that. Um, so your particular story, we're going to get into the details of your abuse uh, situation as a police officer. And I think it speaks to a point you had made earlier about, um, you know, we have this systemic racism in the culture in this, you know, that, that line that you were um, straddling as a black woman and wearing a blue uniform. But then there's also that internal piece of it within the police departments of like reinforcing this social hierarchy so there's so many layers to it. So let's just start at, start at the beginning. You mentioned that you uh, started as a police officer in 1994. So can yeah. you talk about what your career was like back then? Or, or first of all, what you, what you invested in to become a police officer? And then, and then what, um, what your accomplishments were when you were, you know, when you were at the beginning of your career or, or leading up to this, this big issue that you had? So to start with, I grew up in Mattapan, um, and we were probably one of the first black families, if not the, the first black family, to live on my street. Um, at that time, it was um, a Jewish community. Um, gentrification was happening. Redlining was happening. So as a young girl, I was watching this change. This, this, things were changing socially. Um, economically things were changing. Um, I hadn't yet formed an opinion about policing or the relationship between black people and the police. Um, and so I went to an exam school, um, around the time busing started. So I didn't experience that either, but I saw it with my sibling. Um, and then at that moment, I think I began to understand um, a little bit better about the segregation with, with black areas versus white areas and, you know, the, the racism and all of that. The systemic racism became a little bit more apparent to me as I grew older and I started to, you know, I was in the job market and I understood that I already had a relatively good educational background. Um, but all of that came, became more important to me. I grew older and I took the police exam and, and then the, those questions, I was faced directly with those questions. I had to really do some examination of the culture. I heard some things about the culture, but I wasn't actually absolutely sure. And at that moment, I just knew as a single parent that I um, really needed, needed to understand like what I wanted to get out of the job and 
what I would be allowed to do to help my community. Um, and going back to some of the changes, it eventually came a predominantly black area, Manapian, um, drugs and, and things like that were infested in, in the area. And you get to a point in life where you, you see these changes and you see things happening in your, within your own culture and you want to help. You want to help. You want to be part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And so when I took the police exam, I did very well. I was still, as I went along step by step, I was faced with this question of, is this something that I can do? And can I be, can I still fulfill my purpose in helping the community if I, if I took on this role? So I got into the police academy and I graduated in 1994. Um, that was difficult for me. It was difficult for me um, to make the final decision because I wasn't sure if I would be welcomed. I wasn't sure how I would be treated. And I wasn't certain about the power and the ideology that there's an abuse of power within the police department, given the fact that it's paramilitary. Um, so when I started, I began to recognize that different different people were treating there was a double there was there were two different standards, one for white officers and one for black officers. And that was something that became very apparent to me um, in the very beginning. Different, and it played out in different ways. I think everyone has their own individual experiences. Um, when I got on, I was brought on um, at the time when community policing wasn't yet adopted. At, the, at that time, I think we were in the middle of just trying to find out if we could have walking beat officers, if people could interact more with the community. So I graduated, I did well in the academy. Um, my captain recognized me. He wanted me to be involved with the Boys and Girls Club and do a read-along program. So that was my first um, introduction into like being, having, having that type of a role in the community. Thought that was great, I love children. So I did that. Um, he was happy with, with, you know, all the things that he heard and, and how I was building a relationship with small children and being a role model. Eventually, um, community policing in the early 90s was not only adopted, but now there was a, there was a, the pendulum was swinging back and forth, but they wanted to implement community policing in a really big way. Um, we talk about restorative justice. All of those things are part of what policing was trying, was attempting to address. All the social issues, the social ills, um, juvenile delinquency, women uh, in the uh, criminal justice system, all those things were, were, we were trying to address them. So I was entrusted to be a community police officer and I, I was proud. I was proud of that role. I worked hard to do it. I worked hard at it. Um, I was then entrusted to be a juvenile officer to work specifically with um, delinquent teens, uh, students, youth, and, uh, and also just like the youth, youth programs, um, youth detention centers. So I did a lot of that work. Um, it, was it was very re rewarding, but again, now I'm, I was still seeing you know, problems within the systems, whether it be the educational system or it be mental health, I was beginning to see all of that. Um, and I think that I, 
there was an acrimonious relationship happening behind the scenes because I noticed that white officers really were white superiors, didn't support, they didn't fully support my policing style. And so again, I'm left with these questions. Is this my job to fix the relationship with my community to help? Or is it my job to just conform to the, to the police culture? And whatever that whole system has represented. Um, and I began to understand more and more what I thought that that system represented for black people. And I tried to do more community policing and less of culturally what um, was, was put in place for policing. Can you actually talk a little bit more about that piece of it? So your goal was to like, to kind of improve some of these social injustices and then what was actually happening behind the scenes to like, to go against that? So what, can you describe a little bit more of that? Um, yeah. Difference in sure. I, I, I can give you, I can give you a few personal experiences that I have just a couple. Um, I received a radio call. My partner and I received a radio call to go to a woman's home and who said she was having issues with her son. And back then it was mandatory to have a 209A, which is called a domestic violence 209A arrest. If there is threat, bodily harm, or assault, or anything like that. Um, but, but without that, you have to try to use your discretion to figure out what you do have. It's not always an automatic arrest. And so um, I had a white partner and we went, to the, we went to the call and the woman expressed what her frustrations were. But clearly we had to ascertain that she had not been assaulted, she, there was no physical threat, all of that. And I began to talk to her about her son and um, their relationship and whether or not she really understood things from his pr perspective. And she said, no, she didn't. And in long story short, they they cried and they hugged it out and she said she loved him and you know she thanked me my partner was pretty upset with me um because he felt like it should have been a, an automatic arrest um and time and time again you begin to see um some of the racial profiling you see that um there's no hesitation with possibly making an arrest of a black male. Um, you see how they're spoken to, how they're treated. And that's not, that's not everyone. I worked with great officers. There were really good officers on the police force. However, there is a culture, us against them. There's a culture that criminalizes and demonizes people of color. It's, it's called implicit bias. And I wanted to help eradicate that. I wanted to not only change my police, I wanted my policing style to speak for itself, to be helpful in situations like that and not just to make an arrest. But I also wanted my white counterparts to know that I'm not a bad person because I want to be helpful. I'm not trying to deviate completely away from police culture. But that part of the police culture was something that I knew needed to change. Um, I did a detail once at a supermarket and well, it wasn't a supermarket actually, it's still there. Um, 
a small chain, which has now grown to a larger chain. I did a detail, and the manager came up to me and said she wanted me to arrest two young black males. They were, they were black boys. They had lobster in the basket. And she said she thought that was odd. And I said, why? And she said, because they probably can't afford it. I said, I can't make an arrest. They haven't committed a crime. And nor do I want to single them out and make them feel harassed. But I will keep an eye on things. And that wasn't good enough for her. So I eventually spoke to them, and I, I suspected that maybe they were going to the store for a relative. And they were. And she was irate. And she said, I'm going to make sure you never do this detail again. Maybe she felt guilty. Maybe she was embarrassed because she was wrong. And she asked me to do something that would have been vi- would have violated their rights, would have been har- harassing for them. It may, have been, it may have even been traumatizing for them. And I wasn't willing to do that. Right. But I did, but I did do my job and I did what was right. And I spoke to them and, and just asked them politely if they were going to the store for an adult. And they did say, yes, they were. Um, so I kept having those types of experiences. So, so yeah, there's, a, there's definitely this difference between those who like reinforce this abusive power culture and then you who wanted to make things just and, and right and improve the culture. Um, so so that set, sets a good backdrop for when your abuse experience started. Can you- one, the one thing I want to say, though, I, sure. I do want to say that there are many police officers that um, were involved directly with the community that did a great job that perhaps came across other superior officers that were more supportive. Everyone's experience is different. So that's not to say that um, if people didn't experience the same thing, the same level of, adver- level of adversity that I did, that they did not, they weren't doing their job as well as I was doing mine. So I want to make that clear. There are, very, there are plenty really great police officers out there. Mm, okay. Um, so in your particular case, you had this abuse story um, and we'll, We'll get into like the details of it, but how, how did that whole thing start? So what is the, the backstory? There's this, um, I know it started off with this, this charge of AWOL. Can you describe how, how it all started? Um, I went from community policing. Eventually I did that for quite a few years and there was a supervisor that didn't support my style of policing. Um, he was very, very focused on a housing development where I was assigned to be very uh, active with. And that particular superior officer at one point asked me out on a date. And that was back, actually back in 1997. And after I turned him down, I distanced myself. You know, I was no longer as friendly you know, having friendly conversation, casual conversation. I just, you know, I, I kept my distance. But he began to do a lot of things that I thought were um, excessive, uh, such as putting me up on charges for not changing a flat tire that I was not obligated to change. Not because we weren't obligated to do those type of um maintenance is we didn't have those maintenance issues with 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 departmental issue vehicles we did 
But because of the circumstances of this deflated tire, I wasn't obligated to change the flat tire. Well, he actually charged me with it and sent the charge to internal affairs. And so those type, that type of abuse of power, is, that was an eye-opener for me. And that was in 1997. Remember, I got on in 1994. So internal affairs did handle it correctly. They threw it out. He was very upset about it. Um, and he, he continued to do things that were subtle, but definitely an abuse of power. He demanded that I pick up barriers after a festival, knowing that he had a particular unit that was doing overtime to pick up those barriers. Um, things like that went on until he finally made an argument that I should be back on the street and out of my position as a community service officer. Um, sometimes you have to pick and choose your battles. So I went back to the street. I did get injured. I chased that. We would, my partner and I were chasing three suspects that allegedly had a gun. They did not have a gun, but we apprehended the suspects. They had drugs on them. And when the chase, when foot chase happened, I tore my ACL and my meniscus. So I went out on injured leave and it was legitimate. Um, but that is in fact how I got back into that role, which I, I didn't have a problem with, but, but again, the abuse of authority and how things happen does play a big part in, you know, where you see your career going and, and what you think about, you know, what's important on a job like that. And, 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 the trajectory of, of, of your career. You know, you start, you start to make that analysis. So um, that's how I got back on the street. I thought that was important to, to talk about that. And then when I went out injured, that was a long recovery. I had surgery, I had actual surgery. The surgery didn't go as well as it should have. The recovery was long. Um, leading up to my return back to work, there were a lot of things that happened. Um, I was cleared without, I was erroneously cleared two months after my mother passed in 2010. I was erroneous, erroneously cleared to the point where it was an atrocity, actually. I got a phone call that said, you should come back to work on a Monday, I think the Monday right after Christmas, with no paperwork, with no phone call from my doctor at all. And so, that got thrown out. Um, I prevailed in that situation because you have to be cleared according to a particular rule. So it led up to my doctor saying, you know, they're harassing you and you, you're going to have to return back to work after you finish this program, but you do have to finish this program because for some reason you're, you're still, your, your knee is still not fully recovered. So during, during that period of time, in 2011, I was scheduled to return back to work in December. In November, a captain got newly transferred to my station around November and told the clerks of his station to take, put 40 hours in and take 40 hours out so that I was void of a check, unbeknownst to me. I discovered that I wasn't earning a paycheck and it wasn't being direct deposited. And so from there, I inquired about my status. Kind of happened, I inquired about my status and somewhere in the midst of all that, I did receive a phone call from a union rep 
at the district station said that you're being carried, which means you're being categorized as AWOL. While I'm out in a program that the, that the, that the city agreed to and is paying for, it was probably the, the grossest example of abuse of power that I could think of. Because AWOL means that you're absent without leave and no one knows where you are at all. So I was cat I was categorized as AWOL by this new superior officer, and my but my wages were also taken, so I wasn't earning a paycheck, and so that's that's where things became very egregious, and kind of reached a different point. It reached a different level of abuse of authority for me. Wow. Um. So then, what happened after that? So we want to get get up to this June eighth incident. incident. <laughs> Did anything happen in between the AWOL, the erroneous AWOL charge and that yeah. incident? Can yeah. you describe anything else yeah. that happened? So he carries me AWOL and I come in to meet him and he makes some statements that I'm, I'm bright and he wants to know if I'm going to sue him. And I knew at that point that I was at the height of this, what I call the conundrum. I'm, I'm at the height of it at this point. Because now it's not just things that happen. It's not just the, you know, disrespect, the daily indignities. All the other things that I had experienced on the job. Um, this was clearly someone targeting me. And because now that I'm in his office and I've met him and I finished my program, um, it seemed as if he, there was something that he wanted to carry out. So I did come back to work as scheduled on December 14th. I was cleared. And now I had clearance papers. I had, you know, I had followed the protocol for that particular rule that we have, rule 110. I followed the rule, got cleared by the doctor, had the paperwork, was able to come back to work, scheduled to get, scheduled to get my gun. It left him probably in a very precarious situation because once you're AWOL in the military, you don't come back to work. You are charged immediately. AWOL means you are absent. No one knows where you are. You've abandoned your, your duty. Um, so now that I've returned and I have medical documentation, he seemed, it seemed as if he became um, a little bit more adamant about doing something to me. And I didn't know what that something was. So. I was scheduled to return in December. I did one month prior to that, which is very telling. After all the time I had been out, one month prior to me finally coming back full duty, finally, I was carried with this AWOL charge. I came back to work and I worked for six months. During the six months, um, I had a great relationship with my immediate supervisor. I did my job well and I got a gun off the street. I was working with a partner. We had several incidents that were dangerous. We had to mace someone who took the hinges off the door. Was trying to get, he was trying to assault his uh, girlfriend with a machete. So all these things occurred during this time. I didn't go out re on a re-injury. You know, I didn't get re-injured. I wrote up all the reports that needed to be written up. I got, as I said, I got accommodation for getting a, gun, a firearm off the street, apprehended a suspect, and. Although six, that six months went by and I was successful in returning and doing my job, June 8th, two, 2012, at one in the morning, 
the supervisor shows up in uniform, knowing that there's no union rep present. And I was, I was afraid. I was shocked to see a supervisor come out at one o'clock in the morning. That is somewhat unprecedented. And again, it was six months after I had already been working. I knew the AWOL wasn't resolved, but I knew for me, I was out of money and I didn't want the AWOL on my record, but I didn't complain about anything because my goal was to return back to work and be gainfully employed, not out on injured leave, but to be back to work, doing details, doing overtime, you know, being an active member of the police department. Right. Um, and so the problem was more of his than it was mine. For me, I wanted to no longer look over my shoulder and try to figure out why there isn't a resolve or what we're going to do to expunge this from my record and possibly return my wages. That would be nice. But my immediate responsibility was to come back, do my job, do it well, abide by the rules. And I did that. Um, and my, my immediate supervisor was able to document that that's in fact what I did. So when he came in, I knew that there was no resolve from his end because he charged me with the AWOL. And he tried to get internal affairs to look into this AWOL duty status change. And they refused to do it on April 17th. They sent a letter to me and they, they, they said they weren't going to look into it. So I can imagine his level of frustration hmm. because he believes now that I'm going to seek some sort of revenge against him. You know, one of the things that, that I think the black community is trying to do in this movement is make it clear that we don't, we don't need to look for revenge. We want justice. And so that was my position, even as a black woman, black person, I wanted what was right. I wasn't looking for revenge, but I'm sure he thought that I wanted some sort of revenge against him because I, I could have filed a state claim at the time and I, and I chose not to. And I should have. Mm. I could have filed a state claim that he took my wages the way that he took my wages because you can't tamper with payroll. So when he came in, um, I had to meet with him or I would have been insubordinate. On a personal note, I mean, so I wish I had gotten in my car and went home because I knew it wasn't a safe situation. But there was a hostile environment that was already established by the fact that he came in at one. He knew there was no union rep. I'm a female. He's a male. Why would you even want to do that? Why would you want to meet with a woman without a union representative, without a union rep present at 1 a.m. in the morning? My shift started at 1145. His shift starts at eight. I had already worked six months. Why are you here on this particular morning knowing that I don't have a union rep present because he called fire to that. And all the emotions I felt, I can't even really put them into words. But my responsibility is always to do what I'm supposed to do so that I don't, I'm not culpable for the outcome. So I met with him. 
and I had a lieutenant present, and the lieutenant was, was somewhat supportive and told me it would be a one-way conversation. And I said, well, why is he here to see me? And the lieutenant said, I'm not sure. It has something to do with the AWOL. That was six months prior. It was inappropriate. It was unprofessional. It was a bullying tactic. It was embarrassing. It was degrading. It was all of the above. So when we went in the office, I stood next to the lieutenant. The lieutenant was on my right side where I carry my firearm. And eventually, you know, the, the supervisor tried to bait me into a, conver a conversation about whether or not I was, in fact, AWOL. If I had been AWOL, I wouldn't be back to work. So I knew it was him trying to bait me into a conversation, which wouldn't have been in my best interest. So whenever I had to respond affirmatively, I did. Other than that, I didn't want to engage in a two-way con conversation. That would be a violation of my Wayne Gotten rights. Um, he eventually said, I don't like your attitude because you're not speaking to me. And I'm, I'm going to suspend you tonight, which was, uh, you know, after 11.45 this morning. I'm going to suspend you now, tonight. So we're obligated to turn over our equipment when we're suspended. I'm not sure we're obligated to turn over our police ID because by state law, you have to be able to identify yourself as a police officer all, at all times. He stripped me of everything, my ID, my badge. He asked for my firearm. Your firearm belongs to the city safe and unloaded. Safe and unloaded, it belongs to the city. Meaning my obligation is to always turn over my firearm safe and unloaded. And in no circumstances should a gun be handled or mishandled in anyone's office. There have been officers that have been shot and killed in the station, which I'm sure is the reason why OSHA has been involved and has implemented plenty of safety precautions, safety measures, protocols that we follow with our firearms. They have to be locked whenever we're handling prisoners. It was a very unsafe thing for him to do. I should have been taken to an area where you, are, you can safely unload and, and remove your firearm. So I began the, the, what we call the safe and administrative process. I began to take out the magazine, which leaves a live bullet in the chamber. And as I was doing it, there was no verbal warning. There was no heads up. There was no other statements made. The, the supervisor got up from his desk, walked quicker than usual, and I'm quoting the lieutenant. He walked quicker than usual, stopped in front of me abruptly, and just reached out and put his hand on mine and tried to grab the gun, but he, has, he had to wrangle it in order to get it out of the holster because it's in a retention holster. And that is the incident of June 8th that I continue to refer to. So putting you in this completely unsafe position, um, how did you feel after that? Like, what was your let me Let me be response? clear. After being a police officer for 20 years, 
no one's ever made me feel like my life was on the line. And I didn't, I didn't just do community service work. I arrested people. I was in a housing development. Everyone didn't see the police in a favorable light. And I think right now as I'm speaking to you, it, it just, it goes back to being looked, being looked at and asked from a child, what's going to happen to me if someone kills you? Because remember, I, got a, I, had, I had to bring the gun home. Now I'm being, you know, I have, I have a little one looking at me saying, you, you're in a uniform now. But more importantly, the focus was you're wearing a gun and guns kill people. And so here I am in this office and after 20 years or close to 20 years at that time, the supervisor is reaching for my firearm. And in my training, the bulk of our training in the academy is about firearm safety. So during this training, I'm, I understand that I should never allow anyone to reach for my loaded firearm. And even when you take the magazine out again, there's a, there is a live, what we call a live round still in the chamber. And that live round is to protect yourself in the event your life is being threatened. And, some, there's, and he posed himself as an immediate threat. But yet still, there's a fine line that I had to cross. The fine line that I had to cross was to not be insubordinate, but how do I protect myself? So I turned away as quickly and instinctively as I could. I turned back, I turned gun side away as he was wrangling for the gun. He had to wrangle it in order to get it out because it's in a retention holster. It was the most shocking thing I could ever imagine, ever, ever. I'm only five something. <laughs> and one of my biggest concerns and fears was that somebody that was much taller than me in a school setting while I'm walking the hallways could grab my gun or while I'm in a crowd, someone could try to grab my gun. So he hovered over me. It was, it was to have my face invaded and have someone do that to me was so violating and so scary and so threatening, life-threatening. That's how I felt. What, what was like the, the aftermath like that within like 24 hours? Like what... What was your response to, to that whole incident? Honestly, I, I, I sat in my car. I, I, I walked out of his office with the lieutenant. I had a perfect command of my temper, and I stayed calm because I was praying the whole time. I was praying from the moment I found out that he was coming in to see me. So I probably left that out. I was forewarned that he was coming in to see me. So I was very quiet and very kind of still. And uh, I walked out with the lieutenant and I sat in my car, prayed, 
was just kind of like, what the hell just happened to me? And I felt like that I don't. There's nowhere for me to go from here. Meaning, like again, you're always looking at the trajectory of your career, and you know, you 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 go home sometimes, and you're like, this culture is too much for me, or or the criminals are too much for me, or you know, you're always making an assessment of how you feel, if it's something you want to just you know continue to do. You, periodically, we all make these assessments you know, of our life, what we're doing, where we want to go. And I felt like all of that was flashing in front of me. From time to time, I've had all these different, you know, experiences. And this was, this was the catalyst that made me take one final look at what my responsibility was to kind of say no more, this is it. I'm gonna I'm going to have to speak up at this point. I'm gonna have to. Irregardless or irrespective of the backlash or whatever. I and I wasn't comfortable. So I served the five day suspension. It was a five day suspension that he gave me. Um I the lieutenant was advocating for me to be paid for that night or that morning. Um the captain the lieutenant looked a little shocked to me. So I was able to reach reach the lieutenant because he sat in the back area and the the other supervisor's desk was in the front. So I went back in and I talked to him and I said, I, I don't understand what just happened to me. Um, I am a well-trained officer, so I hadn't fallen to pieces yet. I was trying to digest what happened to me. Um, and that's kind of part of our training as well. You, you, you've got to, you know, it's fight or flight. And my adrenaline's flowing. I'm not really sure what's happening to me in the moment, but I'm trying to take control over it. I'm trying to deal with it the best way that I can. So I want to go back to the person who seemed to be kind of protecting my interest. Because the lieutenant came back out to my car as I was sitting there praying. I wasn't even crying yet. I was still in shock. And then I went back in, knowing that he was in the rear of the building. And I said to him, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't know what I'm obligated to do. Because if the AWOL, that's not what I said, but if the AWOL was addressed when it happened, we probably wouldn't, would not, not have gotten to this point. So that, again, goes back to the abuse of authority. Had they addressed the AWOL, the union, other organizations, anyone could have addressed the AWOL, which is, an, which is unprecedented as well. Not many officers, I think, have been ever charged with AWOL and, and put in the same predicament that I was in. But if it had been addressed, he wouldn't be here. So all that's playing out on my mind. But I, what I said to the lieutenant was, all I know at this point is that I'm going to file a complete report. Another supervisor said, we can't speak to you because you don't have a union rep present. And I said, the way that I was suspended is a problem. And I knew that, that they no longer wanted to be, meaning the two supervisors didn't want to be culpable of, 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 violating my way and gotten rights because again they didn't know what I was going to say I didn't have a union rep present 
So I went to the hospital. I called the hospital because I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel I didn't feel safe to go home. I didn't feel safe. Period. Period. So I called the hospital and said that I would be coming in. And I first went to a different station en route to the hospital to somehow report this to a union rep who was working that evening off my district, but still on that shift. And that person walked up to my car and said, I heard what happened and I don't want to get involved and I'm not going to deal with it. And that again felt like another shocking thing that happened because People have a responsibility. And so I went to the hospital. They checked me in. Um, there's a triage note that, that was generated. That triage note disappeared out of my records um, to show that I did go to the hospital immediately. And not every officer goes to the hospital by ambulance. It's not what happens. Um, and, I, and I, after being told that these two supervisors really didn't want to get involved any further, I wasn't going to sit around and figure out how they could assist me with what transpired. It was, it was my responsibility now to do self-care and to put myself in a safe situation. So that's how I saw the hospital as a safe place for me, not knowing what the heck was happening. Um, they said that I had a back sprain, which makes sense because I, you know, instinctively, I, I twisted twisted my body away, um, but I didn't resist completely because I couldn't. But I just instinctively, based on my training, I, I turned my body gun side away. Um, so that made sense. And uh, interesting, the, the female nurses thought they should keep me overnight because I didn't feel safe. They were very empathetic. The male doctors and nurses not so much. So we see this playing out a lot, and we talked about this off record, you and I, about women being erased from a lot of the conversation, not always being seen as victims, just kind of dismissed from it. And so that was the experience I had at the hospital. And so I eventually, the next day, um, a social worker came in and she called internal affairs and internal affairs refused to show up. So that again was another, another example of gross negligence, if you will, and how things get handled, depending upon who you are, what you are. The hospital is reaching out to internal affairs and he doesn't show up. This is all documented. He doesn't show up. Yet, an arbitrator said that I didn't report my incident for a certain amount of hours. The triage notes were left out of the records, and this internal affairs sergeant did not show up to the hospital to take a statement from me, to understand what happened, none of it. So, again, now I'm in another uh, thought process of like, okay, this is going to be serious. This is because a lack of accountability started with the AWOL and the lack of accountability is continuing to happen. 
Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.